0: Welcome to In The Demo, a show about the stories that get told about groups, how those stories got made, what we think those stories get wrong, and why it matters. You hosts, Farah Bostic is the founder and head of research and strategy of The Difference Engine, a strategic insights consultancy focused on helping business leaders make decisions. Adam Piano author and brand consultant and managing director of brand strategy at Arizona State University. You are now in the demo.
1: I'm Adam Pierno, Generation X. And I'm Farrah Bostic, and I'm going to subvert the official microgeneration narrative and say that I'm the Claire Danes generation god damn oh, it. Oh
2: god, so you you're going backwards. I am. I'm backwards to our early beginnings of the Jordan Catalano reference.
1: Blame fleischman is in trouble. I, I just finished watching that. So, you know, there's She's nothing not like walk- the way she ugly cries, man. That speaks for a whole microgeneration. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, you're taking us at episode 7, you're going back in time already to the to the early beginnings of our uh, of our investigation here.
1: I'm never going to commit.
2: <laughs> I like it. I like it. This feels more like a millennial thing. <laughs> it does, which is a whole other conversation we should at some point have. But if yes. you if you demand a trophy and have a baby on board sign, then I know.
1: I'm like looking around. Do I actually have any trophies? And the answer is no. So I Not guess yeah. Check your mail. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> so Farah. You and I spent quite a bit of time looking at Millennials Rising, Yes, the wonderful text that started this whole wild boom, and then going to talk to historians. We talked to uh, Tyler. We spent time looking at the census of McLean, Virginia, Fairfax County, and the United States to figure out how similar or dissimilar they might be. Spoiler alert, if you haven't listened to those episodes, pretty dissimilar. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and we both recognized we need to do some sort of a introduction to how this could have should have
1: gone um yeah. at a high level we talked about this is just sort of not how market researchers do this work right if you if you're trying to look at a group of people and have something kind of coherent to say about that group you can't cut a segment that's 80 million people. And so what we wanted to do was talk to somebody who knows how to do segmentations properly (laughs) and talk a bit about what is a segmentation? Why do we do them? What's the method of defining a segment? And, And how do they get used? And I think that's one part of it the other part of it was then to just sort of say like so here's how these authors did this when they created millennials rising what do you think about that unsurprisingly um a practitioner of the dark arts of quantitative research was sort of like ooh that's I mean, you could. <laughs> <laughs> it only depends on if you care about what the results are and so accurate. Anyway. Right. I think what you'll hear in the interview is some really insightful distinctions to draw about what really is a significant difference between one group of people's tendencies and another group of people's tendencies. Because often, what we're talking about when you see these studies out there that get publicized, you know, they're they're in your pick your favorite news sources, newsletter, or they're yeah. on the news or whatever. Like when they say like Here, a survey done by so-and-so and so-and-so says that millennials are more likely to do X, the question is always more likely than whom, more likely than when. <laughs> um, and it's suspiciously
2: and- absent from the reporting.
1: Right, right. But what's what that suggests is they're, they're more likely than some other cohort. And if they're describing them as millennials, it's probably than some other age cohort. Right. So they're more likely than boomers. But like, if 55% of millennials say they're going to do something and 50% of boomers say they're going to do the same thing, there is not a meaningful difference between those two things. And the person that we went to to interview is an old friend of mine, an old colleague of mine, Paul Soldera, who works now at a place called Equation Research. He's worked in politics. He's also done years and years and years of doing segmentations for brands. And so we sort of sat down to talk through how does all this work? What's the kind of ideal case of of how to do this properly? Um, What happens when you base your research on a single location (laughs) what happens when you try to draw segments that are way too broad how do you know that when some when a group appears to be more likely than another group to do something that that greater likelihood is great enough that it would be noticeable in the world or meaningful right Yeah. yeah yeah and he he has a great metaphor in there about like a restaurant <laughs> and like one side of the restaurant is all millennials, another side of the restaurant is all boomers. What would the difference need to be between those two groups for you to notice that like, oh, something different is happening here?
2: I was excited as we were planning this because you would be the person I would call with this question. So <laughs> when you were like,
1: oh, I know who I would call. I was like, ooh, okay.
2: <laughs> yes. going upstream.
1: <clears throat> yes, I I am the qualitative researcher who does not get itchy about quant. Yeah, like I, I literally have had colleagues in the past who have said like I was told there would be no math. Right. Whereas, That's why I'm
2: here, exactly to avoid. I don't want to talk about <laughs> statistical significance or sample size or <laughs>
1: Exactly. But I think you know I had the the great fortune of of being at Holland Partners when Paul was at P- Holland Partners and collaborating with him on projects about golfers and. God, I don't even remember what else we worked on, TV shows, other stuff. But in collaborating with Paul, one of the things that I always really loved was he's also a strong proponent of doing qualitative first so that you can get the language right and understand what you'd even want to ask in a, in a survey instrument. Yeah, And he would frequently attend that research so that he could hear it as well. That's unusual. Yes, he's the best. So he would do that. And then he would also come back after he got the survey data back and show me the scatter charts. Uh, And these are these like quadrant based charts with little dots on them, where they've done some regression analysis to look at these clusters of responses. And when you know, this group of people seems to respond, you know, strongly agree on these three statements, and this group of people strongly agrees on these three totally different statements. He'd bring them over to me and like have the little circles around the the dots drawn and show them to me. And I would be able to go, Yes, I I met that guy in Atlanta. (laughs) Right. And as a qualitative researcher, I don't balk at that and go, I don't know. What is these are dots on a page. I'm (laughs) able to go like, I yes, I've met these people. Or there are a couple of people who share enough of those characteristics that I see why they would go into that bucket. And mm-hmm. and that, I think, was a, an important sort of dialogue that we always had in working together on on these kinds of projects. And then the other thing I love about politics is a skeptic. Um, and I think one of the things that um, makes for a good researcher is having a kind of interesting combination of skepticism and and then empathy for human beings, <laughs> like understanding that everybody's doing their best, but whatever your ingoing assumptions are are probably wrong.
2: <laughs> right. Right. Or or there's <laughs> going to be nuance that, that gives it more dimension than what, exactly. it's never as black and white as you think it is.
1: Exactly. One of the things that I've always appreciated about Paul is that he has a teacher's mindset. And so if you want to sit down with him and say, what does statistical significance mean? <laughs> he will explain it to you. And, and I then think you will it's realize... apparent in
2: the conversation that like yeah. why he's good to work with mm-hmm. is because he's good at explaining and making people feel comfortable and not intimidated by the math.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Without
2: dumbing it down so much that it doesn't mean anything. Exactly. Right. I've worked yeah. with some brilliant researchers that was just like, but I can't sit across a table from them because they're so <laughs> math. Yeah, (laughs) Like not they're a robot. I I don't know how to engage with them.
1: Yeah. I mean, it is why it is my preference to collaborate with Paul as often as possible. Occasionally we work with other quantitative researchers. And the one thing I will say is he's given me enough training now that I can collaborate with those quant researchers who aren't as good at communication because I at least kind of conceptually understand what I'm looking at. Yeah. Um, He
2: got you. He got you far enough along that you know what questions to ask or
1: Exactly. And so that's why we thought like let's sit down with him and have him kind of do that for the audience because I think it'll help explain some of the weaknesses in the method that the authors selected, but also some of the weaknesses in all the other reports you see uh, that try to describe what millennials or any other generation are like because it's just not really the best way to go about creating segments that you want to be able to describe in any way that's coherent.
2: Yeah, I think people are going to enjoy this conversation. Absolutely.
3: My name is Paul Solero. I am a quantitative researcher, I guess is a good way to, to describe much of what I do in my, my day-to day uh, using um, lots of different ways to understand uh, people and processes and surveys and quantitative data and other types of data. Quantitative research in the way that we typically do it is considered to be um, in the way that typically I do it is considered to be largely custom. So we don't use what you would call pre-built surveys or Omnibus tools or anything like that. We start off with a blank slate and a questionnaire uh, that a client will want to populate with questions that basically get them to understand a market that they're interested in. Then we will take that survey after we've developed it and go to that market and sample inside that market in very kind of specific ways um, to come back with a whole bunch of data. So they're very custom. No two jobs are completely and entirely alike. That we do in the process of doing that, you could do anything from you know asking a questions about new products or services that you want to launch and how to build those versus brand and advertising tracking and do people what do people think of brands and have they record advertising? What do they think of it? All the way down to social issues or causes or their opinions towards politics. All that can come to play depending on what a client's needs are at any given time.
1: We were talking before we hit the record button, before I found yep. the record button. The arc of the story we've been telling is this one, well, I'll sort of put in quotes, one group of people that the media has kind of been obsessed with for a long time. Brands have been obsessed with for a long time. Politicians have been interested in for a long time. Yep. And I think the thing that happens, and the reason I said sort of in quotes, one group of people is that it's 70, 80 million people. Hard to say that's one cohesive group. Mm -hmm. So maybe an important thing to think about here, because I think it gets treated, especially in politics and political polling, but even sometimes in, you know, sort of secondary research reports that you might find. You look at a study about charitable giving or green consumerism or that kind of thing, and it'll break it down Mm -hmm. by generations as if those are discrete groups. So I feel like one of the things we have to talk about is what even is a segment for research purposes because they get talked about like they're a segment but they're huge segments
3: yes exactly this happens in probably all of the work that we do around segmentations firstly i think it's it's partly about convenience if i look back in and look at the segmentation work that i've done in the past for different clients there's very few marketing organizations that can execute against like tens of segments or hundreds of segments or you know, execute against just a, a really broad set of people that they're trying to sell a product or a service to. All right, so the first thing that, that happens, I think, in any kind of segmentation is you've got to get it down to a manageable set of targets, a manageable set of group descriptions that paint the best picture of a market in a given situation. And that's what we try to do. So a lot of what we do is actually take something that might be more complex in the groups that you could create and we actually boil it down to smaller groups, just because it's so much easier to execute against smaller groups. It's so much easier to explain a given market with with a handful of groups that cover off kind of the main things. So there's definitely a convenience aspect to it that that kind of emerges.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe the better first question was: yeah. it would be why, why do we do segmentations? What, why do we, we do we segmentation class? in the first yeah. place?
3: Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I mean, a, a lot of the times, as you know, Vera, having your background in qualitative research, um, when you're talking to people uh, in a given market and you're trying to understand what they're doing, sometimes there are big differences that pop out, You know, big differences in motivations between individuals as to why they're trying to accomplish something. And a lot of segmentation is born out of that. Let's look at this market for product A or service B and understand the different motivations around people who are coming to that product or service. And those can differ radically, as you know. So a lot of segmentation is about just managing the different groups that are there that might need different ways to communicate to, different ways to talk to, different different channels in which you might have to, to, to find them. There's lots of possibilities as to why you would do a segmentation. It, it comes down to finding the different axes of differentiation mm-hmm. in any given marketplace and that are useful for the client and then making segments kind of along those axes in a way.
1: Right. You know, obviously, a thing we talk about a fair amount mm-hmm. is the difference between a segmentation that's meant to help you buy targeted advertising to to reach yeah. a group of people or groups of people, and then segmentations that are there to help you figure out new opportunities or to develop products or to improve mm. products. How are they different when when it's media buying, advertising buying? Versus something more around kind of innovation or really understanding the cons- the customer.
3: I mean, a lot of that comes back comes down to kind of the the purposes of the segmentation in the first place. And you could make segments on all of those things, but it it's going to create way more complexity. And so one of one of the interesting things I think that's kind of relevant to this discussion is that when you go in and you do create a segment on say different ways in which or different reasons in which a consumer is buying a product you might call that like a needs-based segmentation, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You can create that. Then you can also can create a channel-based segmentation and it's with the same data. And so you can say that here's some people who are in this channel and this channel, and they all end up buying the same product, but they came to it in different ways. Mm-hmm. And then you can create a demographic segmentation for the same set of data and the same people. And you can figure out the ways in which different combinations of of demographics, age, gender, et cetera, approach that product and the differences between them. And so you can approach the same set of data with with those three different ways and what you get most of the time is very little crossover between the different segments which is to say that you've got a segment that approaches it with a certain set of needs you know they necessarily spread across almost all the channels or maybe they skew towards one or two channels Mm -hmm. and maybe they skew towards one or two demographics but there's never a really a great correlation between those things so you kind of have to decide which one is most useful in that situation and which one the client can execute on the most effectively and which one you were brought in to do in the first place in terms of, you know, what the original ask was. When you segment on one set of criteria, there is absolutely no guarantee that those segments are going to make sense across another set of criteria you segment on. Mm. That can be the difficulty in explaining a segment because there necessarily isn't a relationship between the channel someone chooses and the needs that they're willing to satisfy for this product or the service. You know, Sometimes there might be, but generally there isn't. And so it becomes very hard to understand the segments when you start to segment on lots of different ways. And you kind of have to choose one direction a lot of the times. And there's lots of there's techniques and everything where you can combine them, right? You can combine mm. channels and you can combine needs and you can combine demographics. And when you do those types of segments... You you go from trying to manage five or six discrete axes that explain everything to trying to manage two to three hundred axes that start to explain everything, (laughs) because there's, there's there's now every single axis that we're using from the needs based is interacting with every single axis you are now looking at from the channel perspective, and the kind of the crossover is this massive net of things that are happening, and so you now need way more segments to explain all of the crossover the consequence of adding more more variables to that equation doesn't actually result in a simpler outcome it results mm-hmm. almost always in a much more complicated outcome so i think right there is also one of the reasons you tend to get smaller segments is that to get larger segments you need to deal with you know typically so many more variables and it becomes really hard to map and explain all of those in a coherent way
1: right there's a balance then we always have to strike between too many segments and not enough <laughs> segments where
3: exactly yeah, yeah there is and a balance of inputs as well i want to understand you know segments from their needs and their demographics and their channels and other things that's why well, you can't you can't necessarily divide a market into a manageable number of segments using all of those things because it would mm-hmm. become too unwieldy and too kind of complex
1: Yeah. Or you Um, start getting into slices that are so thin, it's too small of a group of people to sample. Yes,
3: exactly. You start looking at really small slices of individuals, which is interesting because, you know, I think there's way more complexity in most populations than we ever look at. And so I think that, you know, if you look at a cohort, you look at one of these generations, you know, as you guys have been explaining, there's obviously... A significant amount of complexity inside 80 million people, obviously, right? Can be denied. And I think the complexity inside of that is astounding. If you actually looked at it and looked at all the things that could be going on, you could divide any one of these generations into hundreds and hundreds of additional segments that probably had some kind of thing in common.
1: One step here is like mm-hmm. the, the development of segments requires, first of all, knowing what we want to do with or for or to those segments once we've identified them. And then also what factors we think are going to be useful in defining them. So they might be some demographic things, they might be needs, or they might be attitudes about something or brand preferences. What things do you consider to be essential elements to identifying segments that are useful?
3: I think that the thing that... That we want to see in a segmentation the most is as much difference as possible in the variables that we use to define it. So, we want a segment to be 95% in agreement on something, and we want another segment to be, you know, 95% in disagreement with the same thing. Mm. When you find that, you actually find some very powerful things because you can you can point to the differences between the segments in almost binary terms. Like this segment believes this thing very strongly, or maybe these three things very strongly. And this segment doesn't believe those things very strongly, or maybe believes those things partly strongly, but believe these other three things really strongly that the first segment doesn't. Like you want to get as much differentiation across the things that define the segment as possible and, and avoid segments that have small differences between them, 15, 10% differences to me don't particularly produce really interesting segments. They're interesting skews Mm -hmm. and they might be significant skews, but they're not really defining skews. So good segmentations tend to have a lot of daylight between the different positions that define the segments. If you want to think about it on a kind of a two-dimensional map and you have clusters of points that that in those two dimensions, you want segments where the clusters are very tightly defined in a part of the the two-dimensional space, and you want very few points between them. So you want this this distinct kind of Mm. image of dots, you know, rather than a a huge cloud of things where you can draw large circles around, around them.
1: Yes, and you know I love those charts. You love those all. charts. I love <laughs> I know. a right. scatter chart. I love it so much. <laughs> and I love when the you, circles that we draw around them. The circles we draw around the
3: scatter charts. I yes.
1: met that guy. I know that
3: guy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that's amazing when you do good qualitative and you kind of you can see the centers of the circles. That's what we we kind of want. But it does it does lead into another point I think that's important. And you guys touched on this I think in some of the other uh episodes that you were using to talk about defining cohorts is the difference between something that is statistically significant Mm. and something that's important. It's an important distinction when you come to segments because you can run segments in lots of different ways and you can come up with a lot of statistical differences between segments. But just because it's statistical difference doesn't actually mean that it's particularly important in defining that segment. Mm. And that's, I think, a really important distinction to make um, because a lot of the talk about cohorts is about, well, you know, millennials do this thing statistically more than this other generation. And that's fine, but you have to actually look at the numbers and you have to think, well, if they're doing something 10% more than some other generation, how much of a difference is that? One of the things that we try to avoid, but I see a lot of journalists do when they're looking at data and stuff, is to just look at significant differences and to try to build narratives around that and not build narratives around substantive differences. That can cause a lot of confusion, I think, in what the data is actually saying.
1: It's a really interesting sort of distinction to draw because I think you and I probably both see a lot of things represented as segments yeah. where one group is just doing something a little bit more than the other group or right. like something a exactly. little bit more than the other yes. group. But they all exactly. like it. <laughs>
3: right? But they all like it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Sometimes it's good to like think about what is it. In the real world, I mean, you guys were talking about avocado toast, which I think is a great you know, is a great thing to kind of think about in, in, in this context. You know, if you have you know, millennials, I know I'm, I'm just going to make up some numbers, but these are probably not the numbers, but this is just kind of an illustration of the statistical versus the the importance problem. If, if you say millennials are defined by their consumption of avocado toast and they're consuming it at about 60%, right? So 60% of millennials are consuming avocado toast. That's a lot of millennials consuming a lot of avocado toast. And so that's a good number. And then if you think of say you take baby boomers for instance and you find that baby boomers are consuming avocado toast at about forty five percent. Well any kind of sizable sample of baby boomers and millennials and looking at sixty percent consumption versus forty five percent consumption is gonna be statistically significant. It's like a fifteen, you know, mm-hmm. point difference. You don't need to be talking to like thirty people to get that difference. So if you're talking to a few hundred of them, you know, that's that's going to be something that pops out and you can make a whole narrative kind of around that. But if you turn that into something that's like observational, if you walk into, you know, any restaurant, for instance, and you're looking around and there's a bunch of millennials in there, about half of them are going to be eating avocado toast, you know, 60%, you know, half plus one. And if you go into any restaurant and you look at a bunch of baby boomers who are sitting in there, you know, about half of them are going to be eating avocado toast, you know, 45%, you know. <laughs> Almost half. So observationally, you're going to see no difference between those two things because the actual statistical difference, the magnitude of the difference is so small. And and that's where you can get caught up. And that's why I think you can get interpretations of, of things one way where you go into some place, you know, as a journalist, and you look around and you're thinking, oh, you know, millennials and baby boomers are consuming avocados just about the same here. No, that's not an issue. Right? There, there's something else that must be going on. You know, whereas you do a big quant survey, you find this difference. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, is that kind of difference really important in mm. terms of defining a cohort? And I would argue, no, it's really not. Like, something's happening for millennials to be mm-hmm. more interested in avocado toast, but it's not a universal trait of them. It's kind of a, right. it's an interesting trait, but it's not something that is is definitional. The only time something like that is useful is if you're a supplier of avocado you know and you you go to millennial town and you know you know you need extra tracks to support the slightly higher consumption versus when you're driving into boomer town when you need less so there's situations where that 15 percent might become important but i think for defining a cohort or a segment you know that we do it's it's not really that interesting
1: and i think that also thinking about the kind of i'm going to say journalists part of what i guess i mean is like people who don't do research for a living like they they Mm -hmm. do Sure, they they do reporting, but they don't do market research, right? That's, right. They're not pollsters yeah. themselves. They're reporting on those numbers. You do get this kind of, uh, is it numerate, is it not, to look at 60% versus 45% and say, like, this group is is a third more likely to do a thing. And that sounds significant, you know, as opposed to if it's uh, 30% of boomers doing something and 45% of millennials doing something, they'll say, well, millennials are 50% more likely to do a thing. And that, again, sounds significant, but they're both doing it less than half the time. (laughs) you know, Enough to notice, not enough to be a majority thing. And so the other thing that comes up with those kinds of lay audiences, we get it even with relatively sophisticated research buyers, is a Mm. question about the representativeness of the people that we asked to get to this, because I'm thinking again, yeah. millennial town where every restaurant serves avocado toast, sampling millennial town where every restaurant serves avocado toast might get you a different <laughs> reaction than yeah. cowboy town where every, every restaurant serves you a Salisbury steak.
3: Absolutely. The representativeness is the most important thing you can actually do when you sample. It's more important than sample size it's just, it's critical to get that correct if you want to do something without a, without bias in it. And that's, that stems from just the way in which the statistical theories around sampling works. And you can easily demonstrate it. There's a lot of cool, simple like Excel tools out there to demonstrate just when you start to have a bias sample, what happens to the underlying data and how quickly random numbers can gravitate towards a mean, all this kind of stuff. Like, it really works. You know, these statistical laws that make sampling very useful. If you start off in a way that you are not following those laws your outcome is going to be potentially very biased Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and
3: that's probably the thing that we try and guard against getting a biased sample
1: one of the things that that i sometimes talk about with like blunt instrument segments around very dull edged demographic factors right is something like most people vast majority of people who buy Feminine hygiene products, tampons, are going to be people who have periods. Yes. And people who don't have periods are probably not going to be buying a lot of tampons. That's not to say that they don't, but they're also probably not the end user. So it makes sense to some degree to, if you just wanted to be efficient about things, not survey men about their tampon preferences, because at the very least, we could say they're not heavy buyers of tampons, right? Right. We would want to talk to people who are menstruating and try to keep it within those bounds. So Uh we're not trying to represent everyone in America's position about their favorite tampon brands, we're trying to understand yeah. who would buy tampons. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's also another place where you get kind of funny conversations going about representativeness. You've seen this since the beginning of polling of people saying, well, I can't trust the polls because no one called me, <laughs> right? right? And so right. maybe yeah. maybe talk about how do you know if your sample is representative? How do, how do you think about that?
3: So but- the way in which you ensure ins- a representative sample is that you want to Use randomness as much as possible when you select the people you're going to talk to. You want to identify the population of people you have access to. And you want to make sure that population is diverse and does not have any kind of bias in it itself. Once you're satisfied that that population that you're drawing from is relatively diverse, and you can do that in lots of different ways. You want to sample it in a very random, random way. And so that's that's really the tools we use. The randomness being one of the most important things. It's hard to know what a random sample is and if the techniques you're using are really, truly random sometimes. So that can be kind of difficult. But you generally want to fall back on that as the way to, to check whether you've got a representative sample. You want to see whether or not you are getting the right composition and what you would expect to see in mm. the sample that you are acquiring. Uh, so there's checks you can do around that as well we we often choose things like census distributions for age as a starting point to make sure that in the population that we are going to survey we have a good representation of ages uh, or a good representation of genders or a good representation of ethnicities for instance mm. and then a good representation of geographies so you know if you want to get a random sample and you want to make sure that the bigger pot that you're selecting from is distributed well in that way it is a good range of different variables that you think it reflects, say, the census data, for instance. And then from that pot, you draw your sample. Part of drawing that sample is typically in, this, in the work we do is asking someone about their behaviors or their knowledge about some kind of product or service. It could be tampons. It could be feminine hygiene products. Then the people that get into your survey are people that have some kind of interest in use behavior in that, in that given market. Mm -hmm. you ensure that they are a good sample because the big pot you began with was a good representation of, say, the US population. And you Mm -hmm. kind of whittled it down to people who are in the market that you want to understand.
1: And so in that circumstance, you might even not then screen out people who don't identify as women, for example. You might just say like, hey, you you screened in because you have an interest in this and you have a frequency of buying. Could do.
3: Yeah. Depending on what you want to What you want to talk to them about. Absolutely.
1: So we could talk to dad who's buying for the teenage daughter. Dad who's buying for the
3: teenage daughter. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm in that boat. I've done that myself. Yes. You know, I mean, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. You you could go there.
1: Well, and it's, you know, we, you know, have often joked in, in, you know, the ad business that, you know, the, the end user of, Axe or links. if you're in the UK, Body Spray is a yeah. teenage boy, but the buyer is a 40-year-old woman um, yeah. because she's the one who goes to the grocery store or Boots or whatever and tosses it in the basket to get for the teenage yep. son. So who buys it? Well, she does. And you probably yep. have to keep her on side <laughs> with that yes. brand selection if right. you want it to get into the teenager's bedroom. I-, I think one of the other things that's funny as you were talking is I think sometimes we forget that sample... Is actually a verb, <laughs> and that we are sampling a group sampling. of people, yeah, and so you know there's always going to be a certain amount of risk that the people you sampled are weird, but probably not a ton of risk.
3: yeah, I, so this is a whole other podca- podcast topic.
1: <laughs> Let's start a podcast sampling. Paul. Uh, yeah. <laughs> about sample?
3: It's crazy. so I mean so it, it so it used to be a lot easier is the first thing I'd say. So when mm. I started out in this kind of market research world doing this particular type of work, there were panels and panel providers do that first bit of sampling. They create a panel that's representative, you know, or has enough diversity on it so you can create a representative kind of pot of people you want to draw from. And they did a good job of that. Some of these panels were literally households that would be sent out questionnaires that they would fill out every six months or every two months about all of their behaviors and they would be included in the panel. And if you took a survey and you were part of that household, you couldn't take another one for a couple of weeks. It was all very properly done. And some of these panels were massive. And this is kind of the, in the time before uh, online research became so prevalent. And a lot of research was done through paper questionnaires or mm. telephone calls, etc. And then what kind of happened is that those panel companies became way less efficient compared to creating online panels. And so a lot of that the paneling move to you know, online panels that you try and recruit people to be part of and you try and do the same thing would you try and keep it very representative, etc., and have a lot of variation there. But someone belongs to a panel and you tap them now and then, you ensure you're making sure that they're not answering too many surveys. And then from there, people just realize that was too expensive. <laughs> so what we can do <laughs> is we can just have these more... Uh, pseudo kind of panels that exist out there where they've got access to streams of people in different places on the internet, we can intercept them while they're doing their thing and ask them to take surveys. So that became one of the ways in which survey sampling started to happen, was that you get access to a really cheap sample of people like playing a game or accessing a website or some other thing they're doing and you pop up a survey and they've got to continue with that thing, they have to do a survey. And in, in addition to that, what sprang up is what I like to term kind of survey farms where hmm. you pay people to take surveys and it's pretty evident that's what you're doing. And you're inundating them with survey requests all the time and they're getting a little bit of money here and there to take surveys to complete them. And the incentives for that, to, in my mind, are kind of all lined completely wrong. The, and since that's happened, there's been a lot of companies that now are really concerned about online sample quality. So they've gone back to creating more panel-like environments. Mm. And there's less of this survey farm stream kind of sample coming around. So these days, it's kind of complex to figure out what you're doing to get a good sample because you really need to know what the underlying source is of where you're getting the people from. You can go on to a survey monkey, you can go on to some of these other survey sites and get people to answer your survey, but you don't really know where they're coming from. And so this has been a big problem in the industry, I think. We do a lot of stuff in terms of quality control, in terms of like making sure someone's invested in the topic at hand and making sure they're relevant for the topic at hand, making sure they're not just doing the survey because they want to earn a bit of money. You know, We have a lot of ways in which we qualify people to make sure we get rid of those unhealthy mm. incentives when people take surveys. And most people don't mind taking the odd survey that is about a topic that's interesting to them. And they're by and large very honest about what they say because it's much harder to be not honest than it is to be honest in terms of just cognitive yeah. processing, especially when you're talking about 10 minutes of their time. So, yes, there's a lot that goes into making sure you have a quality sample and you have to put a lot of work into that these days to make sure you have a quality sample. And I think that's another place where someone coming to this as a journalist or someone who doesn't do a lot of research, quantitative-based online survey research, that they can think that they can get a good sample somewhere just by going on to make it self-service product Mm -hmm. and get something. And, you know, that might not be that bad, but if you haven't done all the quality checks and the control on it, you know, I think the chances that you run into something that's biased or not sampled properly or full of people that just, you know, just wanted to take it to get the money is pretty high compared to how it used to be.
1: Yeah. We we even see it in these self-serve qualitative sample providers where some of them are, you know, they may have nicer UIs and be easier to use. But we've been seeing with, with one of them, for example, that the respondents are like in it for two minutes. They're not in it for yeah. the kind of in-depth qualitative we do. Right. Whereas the another provider we use, the UI sucks. <laughs> it does not have the level of investment that the other one does. But the yeah. panel is full of people who, if they opt in, it's because they're genuinely interested in the topic mm. and they will give you the time. And obviously mm-hmm. for qualitative, that's that's half the battle for me is getting someone who's willing to like ride along for all the stupid exercises I'm going to ask them to do and spend the hour talking to me and all of that kind of thing. We have people who kind of are easier to qualify and also are way more useful for us as researchers. It was an interesting thing to observe because I think it just hadn't occurred to me that there would be such a noticeable difference in the quality of respondents? There's yeah. a
3: huge difference between the panels and where the incentives are for someone to spend a bit of their time. It can differ wildly between different panels.
1: And and you're right, we could spend an hour talking just mm. about sample and the challenges around that. But I think one of the things I'm curious about then is if you're trying to talk to a one of these, like it's, it's fewer total segments and the segments themselves are bigger, how do you think about sort of the interior integrity of those groups, how representative they are. If if that segment, for example, shares a, a set of interests and behaviors, but they're wildly different ages, they're all genders, they're all ethnicities, they're all over the country, there's no kind of obvious demographic clustering of them. Mm. How do you think about dealing with that if one of the things the client is interested in is media and messaging?
3: So I think that you, you deal with that in the design of the segmentation. So if you know that the output has to be something that's based on messaging, then you really have to have that as one of the, the foremost inputs. And your output has to reflect that. So it's going back to what I said earlier, that, that you've got these different axes that you, you can't manage them all at the same time and produce five segments. You're either going to have to manage them all at the same time and produce 50 segments, or you really need to choose one. That is going to be the kind of focus of the output i've run into this with clients a lot where they start off and they they love the idea of of, say segments that are has different needs to them for instance right and so there's a really clear reason why this person is choosing to use this product or the service and there's a really clear reason why this other person is using it and you present that to them and they're like oh this is amazing this explains so much you know we're going to target these two segments and then when you get down to the channels and the demographics they're like wait a what do we do? We can't build a marketing plan around people that have no differences on the things that we buy media on. <laughs> you know, and that happens a lot. And there's no easy real solution to that one, unfortunately, other than the fact that that often the times I think when you put messaging out there that is catered to a person who has a particular need for a particular product, you know, that they're going to resonate way more with that messaging than someone who doesn't have that need. So you can target almost based on a a filter that is applied on a personal level about what messages I'm interested in seeing mm-hmm. based on what I believe in. And those people will naturally be interested in your message if it's targeting them, and other people won't be. But it's very hard to find those people in one channel only, mm-hmm. you know, and not the other people. Right. And that's one of the big downfalls, I think, of kind of these needs-based segmentations is that they become... They become really interesting ways to see the marketplace, but very difficult to execute against.
1: Well, and I think one of the places you see this play out in more like political polling, for example, is you'll have political strategists be like, we want to attract the Hispanic voter, so we're going to talk about DACA and and immigration, except Mm. that Tens of millions of Hispanics in America are multiple generation Americans and they don't care about dreamers, you know, or thinking about millennials who are turning 40, 41 years old, depending on how you break down the ages. Maybe they're a little, maybe they're up to like 44. How much do they care when they're in their 40s and are over the income cutoff for student loan forgiveness? Yeah, exactly. You know, talking about, well, we'll get millennials by talking about student loan forgiveness is like, well, you'll get the back half of the millennials,
3: maybe, maybe. I I would never do a segmentation based solely on age. (laughs) To me, it doesn't make any sense. Like none of the work that I do, no no client I can ever think of would ever be satisfied with an age-based segmentation because it just doesn't, it won't explain enough because Mm -hmm. there are so many differences across, there are many differences for people within the same age group. And there's just not enough variance between these large blocks of age cohorts compared to the variance, that's inside them. Mm-hmm. Yes. If it was up to me, these things wouldn't exist.
1: <laughs> so, so when you see reports from brands or trade groups or right. reported on the news that are like, millennials think this and boomers think that and Gen Z thinks this, how do you understand how they drew those distinctions?
3: You know, to put not too fine a point on, it's mostly bullshit, <laughs> if you ask me. <laughs> yeah. I really, I mean, it really is. It's just stuff people are putting together to write an article about generational differences to stoke the fires of intergenerational conflict or something you know to to me it doesn't make any (laughs) sense from a point of view of trying to really understand what's going on I don't think it's very powerful because there's too many confounding kind of variables like one of the biggest that you guys touched on right that I think is totally true for all of this is the fact that your preferences and your tastes and your political outlook and everything change as you age there's a natural way in which all of these cohorts being defined by what they were when they were young, completely change, you know, who they are as they age. And there's millennials that have much more in common with baby boomers when baby boomers were the same age as millennials are now, for instance, that's kind of playing through this whole thing
2: Mm -hmm.
3: as well. So that's difficult to kind of tease out. I mean, I don't really take a lot of notice to be honest, of, (laughs) of a lot of it. And clients will talk about Gen Z a lot. And a lot of that is just well, what are the youth doing these days? Like, What's different for people who are right. coming into the world of commerce or buying things or consumerism? And, and that that's totally fine. But I don't use cohorts of generations much in what I do for most of my clients. I just don't. It's not a useful way to really think about why people do things.
1: When you do an age break, how wide is the span?
3: Usually around 10 years. Yeah. Is what we'll use if we do age breaks sometimes it'll be closer to 20-25 years mm-hmm. depending on what the client is doing i mean you'll see interesting things with regards to people who are pre and post family and family with kids no longer at home those are the typical kind of breaks where what people might think about and buy and purchase etc be interested in, what kind of shift depending on their family situation but even when you do those breaks the differences aren't that massive Mm-hmm. so you know we go back to that whole well I can find statistical differences between age but they're not definitional differences of age groups like they don't define those different age groups right it's it's that 49 plus might do this thing 15 percent more than people aged 34 to 48
1: I've found like doing that where we then split that again you know 49 plus by those who have kids at home and those who don't have kids at home and that might be suddenly be like, oh, well, the ones with kids at home are explaining most right. of this result. Most
3: of the, the results. Exactly. Yeah. So you have uh, some other variable that's playing into the age mm-hmm.
1: difference. Yeah. yeah. So I guess one of the things I do think about with this is when we look at those kind of demographic factors. Are there some that you find is life stage? Like I, I know I'll speak for myself. Life stage is if I have to pick a demographic thing, <laughs>
3: yeah. Life, life stage is the
1: thing I'm going to pick. Um, but I don't know. What, <clears throat> what's your take on that?
3: It all depends how the demographic interacts with the thing that you're looking at. Right. That's the easiest situation I'm in compared to say you might be in when trying to talk about age cohorts in general, mm-hmm. because you're not talking about something that they're interacting with. You're just talking about the age band in of itself. If you look at you know sports, for instance, there's a huge difference between the genders when you look at sports and their consumption and their interest and stuff. So that's a really important demographic split. There's a big demographic split in age when you look at sports as well. So that's useful. So, I mean, Hispanic is really interesting when you're looking at different things to do with Hispanic Americans or not because there's different consumption patterns and there's different media that they consume. So the way in which an Hispanic American might be consuming something can be very different to a non-Hispanic American. So that, that mm-hmm. split becomes very important. Definitely life stage can be very important as well. Kids in the home, kids not in the home is always a big distinction. Children make a big difference to someone's outlook and what they're interested in and what they buy, right. et cetera.
1: Right, And their perception um, of free time. <laughs> their perception of free time,
3: yeah, all <laughs> of that kind of stuff. Yeah, Yeah, we don't use a lot of others. Demographic differences just aren't very useful in explaining what's really interesting. I find, Mm -hmm. you know, that can be, they can be the starting point, but you never really get demographic differences that 90% of this group does this and 1% of the other group does it. You Mm -hmm. don't get those kind of huge distinctions.
1: Well, and that makes me think about the kind of cause and effect part of this, which is, I think sometimes we see these kind of generational surveys or whatever, where it's millennials think X, boomers think Y, and they think it because they're millennials or they think it because they're boomers, not because they're yeah. reacting to the context they're living in, <laughs> not because. Right, Because right. yeah, the other thing you could argue is why do millennials eat avocado toast? Because they get it marketed to them?
3: Like, to, to buy, yeah, right, yeah. Like and they, they know that they know that as a millennial they should be consuming avocado toast, right? Because <laughs> that's what they say. Yeah, that's what they say. Yeah.
1: So the quick thing I want to gut check with you is yep. let, you know let's let's time travel back to late 1999, 2000, <laughs> and w- the, the origins of this book that we've been trying to, to reckon yep. with um, for several episodes, Millennials Rising, where they were looking at census data, they were looking at some publicly available secondary research, they were also looking at just news coverage and trend mm. spotters and Mr. Youth. And that kind of thing. They also did their own research in McLean, Virginia, amongst mm. mostly high school students and their teachers. So in 1999, a millennial is at the oldest, like 19, and at the youngest, they're not born yet. McLean, Virginia, which we talk about in another episode, not a super representative place. Property values are like 3x the national average. Incomes are like 2 or 3x the national average. After they basically built the Pentagon, it became a place where affluent government workers went to live instead of being like dairy farms or whatever it was before that. But out of that book is born this narrative that is kind of grown into having a life of its own to some degree and has changed over time a little bit. But hmm. it's, that's really kind of the origin point of how media was talking about this generation. And it has sort of stuck around as, right. as part of the narrative. And I'm curious if that was how you were researching a generation, a, a group of young people, and you did it like this, what could go wrong?
3: You could get a completely biased view of what that generation <laughs> was about. You would never do that kind of research in one place in America, particularly if that place was skewed some way, affluent or not. I just, it's not a good idea. Full stop. <laughs> I, it's just not. I mean, I don't know how to else. You know, you just you just don't do that. You would never. You would never do that. I and mean, I mean, you would never do that in any of the stuff that we do when we right. look at trying to understand
2: mm-hmm. a
3: broad portion of the U.S. population by going to one place and looking at it. No, that would be, you know, that would be considered. Just not good. It was it qualitative research they were doing, Farrah? Was it quantitative? What were I they? mean,
1: it's represented as a survey, but survey, they also seem yeah. to have had some of the teachers solicit like essays from some of the students. So, of course, oh, then you have okay. the teachers selecting yeah. for a more kind of qualitative, but qualitative written response.
3: Yeah, I mean, for qualitative research, it's different because you're not trying to understand the proportions of things. And so, I mean, this is where this distinction is made, right? It's like qualitative research you can talk to a handful of millennials and I think you can understand a lot about the context in which they're living and that could be useful even then though and you and I know that you wouldn't go to one place (laughs) and do qualitative (laughs) research among slightly affluent high school I mean you you have to even in good qualitative research as you know you have to you get a more diverse input than that we would yes. pick
1: different sizes of cities and different regions Yes, exactly and, yeah. yeah
3: as a standard way of doing it and yeah you you run into potentially big bias problems if you don't do that even in qualitative i think
0: yeah
1: uh yeah. well i know that you've got to go but this seemed to go pretty well so thank you so much
3: Paul. yeah no problem it was All my right. pleasure
0: on the next episode of in the demo Farah and Adam discuss how millennials were served by being framed as consumers first, and people, second. I'm your robot host, Eliza. Please be kind. In The Demo is produced by Farah Bostig and Adam Piano, with support from The Difference Engine. Music by Omega Man, under the Creative Commons license. Go to inthedemopodcast.com for behind-the-scenes research and supporting information.